Fellow students, if you'd be so kind to open 1 Samuel 25, we're going to look at one of the most interesting women in the Old Testament, a little character sketch of Abigail's interaction with David. How many have been watching the Olympics? Yeah, pretty good stuff, huh? Have you ever noticed with the Olympics that you don't win gold based on last Olympics gold? You have to do the work today, you know. The gold medal you won last Olympics won't win the gold medal this Olympics. There's a little sweat in between. You can't win today with yesterday's efforts. Each day has its own struggles of faith. So Rob's going to put a map up, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Chapter 25 of 1 Samuel really is a vignette, a drama, if you will, between chapter 24 and chapter 26. Chapter 24 and chapter 26 really both record mirror images about how God put King Saul in David's grasp, literally put him in a, in a very vulnerable position, once in a cave and once when he was asleep. Two times God put Saul in, in uh, David's hands to test David's obedience. David had an opportunity twice to kill Saul. First time was in En Gedi, which is right there on the Dead Sea, uh, the spring for those of you who've been there, and then the second time in the wilderness of Ziph. In both cases, David was obedient. David did not kill Saul, even though he could have, and a lot of David's people wanted him to kill Saul. He had two successes. Well, this chapter is going to show exactly how close David came to a catastrophic failure. Let's take this out. Verse 1. Then Samuel died. Three little words, very important. And all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now Samuel was the last judge in Israel. He was the most significant leader in Israel since Joshua. God had used Samuel, who was a prayer warrior, to really transition Israel from a loose tribal confederation to a centralized uh, monarchy with a centralized government. Samuel, interestingly enough, did not build a monument to himself like Saul. Samuel is a very humble man. Where did he want to be buried? What does it say? In his backyard. He said, you know, right next to the rose bushes, that's where I want to be buried. Now, if you look at David's life at this point, David has been getting hit with a lot of losses in a very short period of time. Samuel is now dead. Samuel was a spiritual mentor. Samuel was the one who anointed him king. Samuel was always the one that David went to when he needed spiritual insight and input. His best friend, Jonathan, he's only seen one time in 10 years because Jonathan's at the palace and Jonathan's father, Saul, wants him dead so they can't exactly meet. So his best friend, no, no contact. As a fugitive, he couldn't go back to Jerusalem to see his wife, Michael. He hasn't seen his wife, Michael, in years. He's a fugitive. And his parents, he's relocated to a foreign country in Moab. You can see at the bottom of the Dead Sea, you'll see an arrow going around that to Moab. So he doesn't have any contact with a lot of people that are important to him. And after Samuel's death, he travels south to escape Saul. The wilderness of Paran is the way south end of the Negev Desert. It's actually off the map. It's continued further south. When you look at a map of Israel, the southern half of Israel is all in the Negev Desert. So it's largely unpopulated. It's where Hagar and Ishmael lived after Abraham sent him away. And down there is a fellow named Nabal, verse 2. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. So he lived in Maon, right next door his business was in Carmel. 
And the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, these two sites, Maon and Carmel, are right next to each other. You can see that on the map. Carmel, by the way, means garden spot. So it's, it's assumed there was some water there. Both of these sites are about 14 miles east or west of En Gedi. So if you look at the map, there's about 14 miles between En Gedi and this particular location, about seven miles southeast of Hebron. Now, these are distances that today you can travel in a car and you don't even have to sweat. But back then, they put sandals on and they walked. So 14 miles was going to take a chunk of a day to get there because you walked about three miles an hour, three, three and a half. Verse 3 gives us a little parentheses. You'll notice that verse 3 is in parentheses, and this is a character description of the two major players in this drama. Now, the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was a schmuck. Other one, did your Bible say? Okay. It says, the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Now, you got to look at this guy and you got to say, it must have been a nickname because Nabal means fool. I don't know of any parents that right offhand would name their kid fool at birth. You know, when they get to about 13, no problem, right? But I mean, at birth, probably not. So it might have been a nickname acquired by his behavior. Behaved like a fool pretty routinely. Maybe people started calling him Nabal. I don't know. In the Old Testament, a fool is someone who takes no account of God. God does not figure into their plans. God does not figure into their thoughts or their aspirations. They are ungodly. Now, his wife's name means Abigail, which means my father is rejoicing. She was obviously a wanted child, right? My father is rejoicing. Thomas Constable is a um, commentator, and he notes the contrast between this husband and wife team, right? He was foolish, she was wise. He was evil, she was good. He was arrogant, she was humble. He was ungodly, she was godly. He was antagonistic, she was the peacemaker. He was repulsive, she was attractive. He was cruel, she was tender. Huh. I'm just looking at couples, just kind of, you know, just kind of seeing how it all works, right? You don't have, you look at me and you know that Maren's got all the good stuff in this relationship, right? The beauty marries the beast, right? I mean, this is beauty and the beast. Disney should have taken a hit on this one. And you say, why would not just a beautiful woman, but an intelligent woman marry such an idiot? That is a mystery for the ages, yes. By the way, males, it's always a mystery, right? In those days, marriages were arranged. Get it? Her parents were impressed with his money. Unfortunately, he was very wealthy, but he was, character-wise, the guy was bankrupt, right? So you got to look at this marriage and you go, she put up with a lot. Verse 4. David is down in this neck of the woods and he hears that Nabal is shearing his sheep. Now you sheared sheep twice a year, generally in the spring and in the early fall. And you had to hire a lot of extra help to get the shearing done because your normal shepherds, there just wasn't enough hands. So there was, you had to hire a lot of people at this point in time. And when shearing was finished, it was a big party. 
big celebration for shearing because it was a time where there was the harvest was in and you were the mosaic law said be generous with the poor at this point in time so it was generally a time of celebration and a lot of generosity went on during this period of time so david knows this verse five so david sent ten young men and he said to the young men go up to carmel visit nabal and greet him in my name and thus you shall say have a long life peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have verse seven now i have heard that you have shearers now your shepherds have been with us and we have not insulted them nor have they missed anything all the days that we were in carmel ask your young men and they will tell you therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes for we have come on a festive day Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. Here's the scene. David has 600 men at this point in time that are following him. They're those people that have been in debt. They're in distress. They want to see a change of regime. They're not Saul loyalists. And they have been down south patrolling and protecting shepherds. You need to understand in this neck of the woods, you had the Amalekites, you had the Moabites, you had the Edomites, you had the Philistines, you had wild animals, and you had a whole host of brigands, literally banditos, who would come upon shepherds, kill the shepherds, steal the sheep. Happened very, very common. So David's armed, really, soldiers have provided a lot of protection for these shepherds for months. You'll find out later how much it says they were a wall around them. So they really contributed to Nabal's prosperity. Nabal would have to hire, you know, at this point in time, mercenaries to protect his flock, or he would lose a lot of them at that point in time. So it was not unreasonable for David to ask for a gift. David says, we've been protecting your shepherds for months. Please be generous, and whatever your hand finds, I mean, they were hoping for some food, right? It was a time of celebration. Now, Nabal could spare a few sheep, right? He only had 3,000 of them. You know, a few would break the guy, right? And David is extremely polite. Verse 9, we're going to find out what Nabal's response is, and you can imagine it's not polite. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and then they waited. But Nabal answered Caleb, David's servants, and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? I'm thinking how I would say that in the vernacular, and I'm not going to say it in the vernacular. There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men whose origin I don't know? Now, you're Nabal, you're having a big celebration, you got a lot of shears, and you're having a big celebration, a big party, and these group of 10 guys come up and they ask for a gift based on services rendered. Now, he could have given him a little gift. He could have said, thank you, no gift. He could have said, thank you, big gift. But he waves the Hawaiian good luck sign right in their face. I mean, he just insults them, right? He literally hurls insults at them. Now, he obviously was a loyalist to King Saul, and he's accusing David of being an insurrectionist, of being an outlaw. Interesting, David and Nabal are both from the tribe of Judah. So they're relatives to some degree, but that means nothing to this guy. It says he's a Calebite, which means he was, he, he's from the, tr from the tribe of Judah, but from the family of Caleb, who with Joshua, obviously was one of the two faithful spies. So he's got a really illustrious heritage. So he's saying, I don't even know your origin, yo mama, right? He's basically saying, you're just riffraff. You know, I don't know you. 
I'm, you know, I come from this illustrious part of the tribe and you're not even a redheaded stepchild. You know, he's kind of insulting, right? Now the reality is Nabal's a self-centered miser. He refuses to share anything with anybody. Get your Bible out, get a pen out, and I want you to underline the number of times he says my. My bread, my water, my meat, my shearers. You think this guy's a little self-centered? Yeah. He reminds me of who? He reminds me of the rich fool. Remember the rich fool, Luke 17? Jesus describes the rich fool, I'm sorry, Luke 12, verse 17. And the rich fool has got abundant crops and he says, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build large ones and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. You, you know anybody like that today? Anybody in your world a little selfish? You know anybody like that? How do you, how do you want to respond to selfish people? I mean, you want to slap them silly, right? Right? Just with a two by four. So Nabal or this rich fool that Jesus was talking about never give God credit for any of their blessings. It's all about my hard work and my possessions and I'm not going to share any of it with anybody. And both of the rich fool in Jesus' parable and Nabal are fools and both of them die. And you know something? When they die, they're still playing the fool. Haven't learned a thing, right? Verse 12. So David's young men retraced their way and went back and they came and told him according to all these words. And of course, David being the tender poet from Psalm says, oh, let's sing this guy a little, you know, how about a dirge? David said to his men, each of you put on his sword. So each man put on his sword, which means they had him, right? This is an armed group. And David also girded on his sword and about 400 men up went behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. <clears throat> this is no more Mr. Nice Guy, right? David is so done with this guy. It's get even time. It's revenge time. It's payback time. Now, unfortunately, what's in control here is David's temper. It's not the Holy Spirit, right? Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us. This is David's men were very good to Nabal's shepherds. We were not insulted. We didn't miss anything as long as they went about with us while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by day and by night all the time we were with them. So when you see in Scripture something just happened, that's the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit. It just so happens that Nabal's servant overhears Nabal cussing out the David's soldiers, and he tells Abigail the services that David's men have performed. It says, they were so good to us, they were a wall of protection. I mean, we could have lost a lot of sheep and maybe our lives, but David's men had protected us at that point in time. This area, of course, was rife with bandits. So shepherds were in constant danger without the protection that David provided. Now, verse 17, the servant says to Abigail, Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. This you do not want on your gravestone. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. If they put that 
in your gravestone or on your gravestone or they say that at your funeral, that would not be a good sign. Just saying, right? Small item. The servant is talking to Abigail. He's telling her that the entire family is in mortal danger. David is coming down the mountain with 400 armed banditos, if you will, or soldiers or followers of his. And he tells her because she is a discerning woman who has wisdom. Besides, her husband, his master, is so worthless that he refuses to listen to anybody, right? Worthless here means belial. It literally means useless. Good for nothing. That's what her husband is. Good for nothing. I find it interesting that the servant would be so frank with his wife. I mean, she's telling him, your husband's an idiot, right? He's a fool. He won't listen to anybody. He's worthless. He's good for nothing. I also find it interesting that Abigail doesn't disagree with him. Right? I mean, she doesn't say, well, he means well. She doesn't make any excuses at all, right? She's not even offended. Right? I mean, it must be pretty well known in the household, in the employees that this guy has, that this guy's a fool. And he's living up to his name. That would not be a good thing if you employ people and your employees call you Nabal. If your name's ever associated with that, somebody's been to this class and you don't want to be, you know, yeah. Nobody in this class is named Nabal, right? I'm just checking. Now, fools refuse to listen to advice. You know why fools refuse to listen to advice? Because no one is smarter than them, right? You know people like that. I am amazed at the number of people in the world, nobody, none of them here, who won't ever ask for advice. They'll never admit, I don't know. They'll never say, what do you think about blah, 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 right? It's always a good idea to seek godly counsel because as wonderful and as wise as you are, we all have blind spots, right? We all have things we don't know. And what makes it worse, it's not the stuff we don't know that the trouble is, is uh, who is the humorist? Will Rogers? It's what we think we know that just ain't so. That's the stuff that gets us in trouble. It's the stuff we're absolutely convinced is right and it turns out not to be right. And that's where you talk to somebody else and say, here's what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? I've seen people get married three and four times and never ask anybody for advice. And I'm going after the fourth one, maybe you should ask for a little advice. Just saying. Just saying. Now, Abigail's not only a woman of wisdom, she's a woman of action. Verse 18. Abigail hurries and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raging and 200 cakes, and that would just be about enough for a man of lunch, right? Just not quite. Loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Just a little tagline there. Now, two jugs of wine. In those days, they didn't have plastic, they didn't have glass. What they would, they'd have goat skins. And what you do after you slaughtered the goat, you'd pull the hide off the animal without tearing it. You would not tear the hide, right? 
you'd tan it, you'd have leather, you'd take all the uh, fur off of it, and then you'd sew up all the loose ends like where their legs were, where the head was, and you'd literally have a goat skin jug. That's what they called a jug. It was a goat skin. Held a few gallons of liquid, made a very large bag. That's how they carted water around and liquid around in the desert. We might call it a camelback today. Is that what you call them? Camel pack, right? So she gets five sheep that have already been slaughtered. Now, I've been in, obviously, Nabal's preparing for a feast, so he's got five sheep slaughtered. She just grabbed those. It says she took five measures of corn. Now, a measure of corn is almost a bushel, and a bushel is about 9.3 gallons. So when you think a bushel, think about a little over nine gallons. So she's got five of these, which is about a 55-gallon drum of parched corn. So when you think about what she's hauling up the mountain, it's about a 55-gallon drum of parched means dried, dried corn. She knew she had intercept David before he hit the camp, because once he hits the camp, the swords are out, everybody's going to die, because David is hot. Now she sends the food ahead, which is a really good thing to do. Ladies, when he's hungry, he's not rational. I didn't say he was rational when he's full. He's just a little more docile, right? You feed him enough and you put enough beans in there, he might go to sleep. Then he's real rational. Just saying. So she sends the food on ahead so that David will understand that his request has been met. He wanted food, his request has been met. And then she's going to have a conversation. Now, I've read a number of commentators that say, well, she should have told her husband. She was acting outside his authority. I'm telling you, if she would have told her husband, what would he have done? He would have forbidden her to go, and you know what that means? He would be dead in the next two hours. Now, if she really wanted this guy dead, she'd have just sat back and said, I'm going to take pictures of this, <laughs> right? He's going to run his mouth. David's going to run him through. I'll be done. Get rid of the fool. Let David take his head off. Right? I mean, I can see her thinking that would be the logical thing to do. Obviously, she loves him enough or loves maybe the rest of the employees to say, I'm going to go intercede with David on their behalf so the whole camp doesn't get killed. By the way, she's not stealing his sheep. She's paying a debt that he refused to pay, and he owes, and she knows that. Very wise idea. Always good to pay your debts. Doesn't matter who does it in the family as long as it gets done, right? Verse 20. Came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her, so she met them. I don't know where the hidden part of the mountain is, but when I read this, I get the distinct impression that God has a divine appointment for the two of them and a specific location that's been pre-selected by God. Now, verse 21 and 22 tell you what David is thinking. He doesn't communicate this to Abigail, but this is what's going through his mind and what he records when he's riding down the mountain with his 400 men behind him. He says, surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing is missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. You can write that down because you have some friends that do that to you or neighbors or whatever. Verse 22, 
May God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any belong to him. Here's the principle. When you serve others, don't keep score. Trust God to take care of you. David is saying, you owe me. It's payday today. I've done all this good stuff. I've protected your flocks and herds. David did good by Nabal. And you know what he expects in return? Good. He says, you reciprocate. I do good for you. You do good for me. So Nabal returns evil for good. You know what David's going to do? Evil for evil, baby. You shine me on, I take your head off. Real simple. I protected your herdsmen. You owe me. Now you refuse to pay me. Now you insult me. I'm going to kill every one of you. Innocent and guilty alike. Today we call that uh, overreacting. Right? This is a little overreaction, right? Kind of like the LA freeways. You cut me off, I do what? I get out a gun and I kill you for cutting me off in traffic. Right? We call it road rage, right? Stupid on display, right? It happens. We see this every day, right? Gangbangers kill each other daily over unpaid debts, right? If you don't pay me, I kill you. That would be called, you know, using a 20-pound sledgehammer to kill an ant. You get it done, but it's a little over the top, not called for, right? And we look and we go, well, David must be pretty hot. Yeah, I would say David's pretty hot. His temper's in control, not the Holy Spirit. He's keeping score, and he's going to even the score. Interesting question. How do we respond to people who we serve when they reject us and scorn us and shine us on? Maybe they're children or grandchildren. Whoa, right? Or friends or employees or neighbors. You do good and you expect good in return and you don't get good in return, you get evil in return. Jesus told us in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. That means they're dissing you, right? Saying bad things about you on account of me. Verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets that are before you. Here's the reality. People that don't do right hate people that do right because it makes them look bad? When you live for Jesus in your community, there are some people that are going to be attracted to your goodness, the Jesus in you, and there are some people it's going to make them look bad and they're going to hate it. That's the nature of life, right? When you follow Jesus, the people that don't like Jesus aren't going to like you. It's not about you. It's about the Jesus that you serve, right? Our ultimate reward for doing right is where? You're not going to get payday here. David wants to get paid now. Right? I did good for you. You pay me now or I'm going to kill you. Right? For the believer, payday is someday. It's not today. The good that you're going to receive will not come from people. It'll come from who? Come from Jesus. Jesus is going to repay your good deeds on planet Earth. 
and he's going to pay you in heaven, not here. See, ultimately, we don't serve people, do we? Ultimately, who do we serve? Since we're serving Jesus, from who should we expect reward? From Jesus. People will never reward you the way you think you deserve. Say amen. amen. I think the Lord sometimes wants to teach us, if people always were nice to you when you serve, then we, were, we forget who we're serving. And we start serving for the goodies from people instead of serving out of obedience to our king who loves us at that point. So David has forgotten this. He's, God is not even on his radar, baby. This is a horizontal relationship. I'm going to settle the score right now. But God has other plans. God is going to use Abigail to prevent David from becoming a murderer. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Let me give you a picture here. This is one woman riding on a donkey, taking her life in her hands, facing 400 armed men who are bent on death and destruction and they want to kill her whole household. She is going to intercede on behalf of her household for them and she uses a position of submission to accomplish a godly goal. She physically bows down, which a vassal would do in front of a king. She offers to pay for Nabal's sins herself. Who did that for us? Jesus paid for our sins. So in many ways she says, on me I will pay for his sins, I'll take the blame for his sins. And then she requests that David listen to her words. Understand in that culture, men generally didn't listen to women, right? Some things never change, I know. She calls him Lord 14 times. When you read this, just read the whole passage, you start underlining. The number of times she uses Lord, and you're going, Whoa, lady, this is a lot of lordship here, right? I mean, she's acknowledging him as her superior, as her king, because he's been anointed king. And she calls herself as maidservant six times. I want you to understand, I didn't give this to Rob, but her position of submission is a position of power. Because when she submits to David, David hears God through her. Did you get that? We don't want to submit to anybody. We want to dictate. She comes in a position of submission Almost to the point where you want to puke. I mean, she's really Lord this and maid servant that. And you go, ah, just tell him. Don't do all this, you know, stuff, man. I mean, come on. We live in America, right? We don't do this stuff. But she understands the context in which she's dealing with. Her position of submission allows David to hear God through her. That's our mission, right? When we speak you don't want people to hear you. Who do you want them to hear? Jesus. You want them to hear Jesus in your words. And if we will set aside our rights and submit to Almighty God, He will speak through us and there's a much higher probability people will hear. What does she say? Verse 25. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. This is her husband. Right? <laughs> 
Kind of. It's an arranged marriage. Nabal is his name and folly is with him, but I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She acknowledges that Nabal is a fool. She doesn't make excuses for his sin. She admits it. We could get into the whole family dynamics of denial, but you don't fix a problem in a family or anywhere else until you face it, right? You got to face it if you're going to fix it. She calls it like it is. Now, some have accused Abigail of disloyalty by calling him a fool. In fact, she calls him a fool to save his life. She's pleading for his life. Here's why. She's telling David, it would be no credit for you to kill an idiot. What glory is there going to be for you to kill this idiot? Right? Literally. Now, remember, David did the same thing. Two chapters ago, David's in Gath. He's in front of the king of Achish, and what does he do? He pretends to be insane. He lets his saliva drool in his beard. He's pretending to be insane to demonstrate that he's harmless. And Achish says, why would I bother killing this guy? He's insane. There's no credit for me to kill an insane person. Abigail's doing the same thing. She says, yeah, you can kill him, but he's a fool. So understand have you ever heard somebody say, when somebody runs their mouth, you go, well, consider the source. Yeah. You ever heard that? That's what this is. She's going, yeah, he behaved badly, but consider the source. Of course he's going to shine on your young man. I mean, he's a fool, right? So she's explaining how come David's young men were insulted. Verse 26. By the way, ladies, I, I would treat this one with a great deal of gentleness if you happen to be in a relationship with a man, right? Unless you're married to a neighbor. I don't know. Then pray. Verse 26. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Principle. A real friend helps you stop focusing on yourself and start focusing on God. Write that down because it's not just the friends in your world, it's the people that you should be doing this with. A real friend helps you stop focusing on yourself and start focusing on God. What Abigail is doing is she's calling attention to God's past faithfulness in David's life. She says he's restrained you from shedding blood. He's restrained you from killing Saul even when you could. Saul has tried to kill David now. Uh, 12, 13, at least 13 times in the last couple, three years. And David has trusted God to protect him. David has not shed Saul's blood, even though Saul was trying to kill him. So David has not taken personal revenge. Now, revenge says, I'm going to take care of it my way, my time, right? Didn't Clint Eastwood make a flick a while back called Unforgiven 10, 15 years ago? It's all about, I'm going to take care of business my way, my time. So Abigail is saying, David, take your focus off yourself and how angry you are and focus on the Lord who has restrained you and protected you all these years past. Here's the reality. Let God take care of you. He does a much better job than you can, right? Many of us don't want God to take care of us because we think we can do a better job than he can. Boy. I'm kind of looking around and I don't know that we take very good care of ourselves. I'm not talking physically. I mean, just when we're in charge, bad things happen, general rule of thumb, right? 
I mean, we all got scar tissue from when we've been in charge. And we come back to sanity and we say, Lord, what, why don't you drive the bus? I've got a lot of bent fenders. I've rolled this thing four times. Maybe you should drive the bus instead of me driving the bus. That's what she's interceding in for, verse 27. And now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany you. She's saying, your request for food was correct. It was right, it was proper. We owe you in light of all that you've done for us at that point. God knows that David needs food for his men, right? You think God knows that? David was going to get the food by killing Nabal. You know, this is one of these backstories. We go, well, David was just hot. Yeah, but David was also hungry. Where was all the food? In Nabal's camp. After he killed everybody there, who's going to get all that food? David's going to get all the food. God is saying, I'm going to supply your need for food, David, but it ain't going to be through your sword. It's going to be through Abigail's generosity. I will meet your need my way, not your way. So we all say, God's going to meet my need, right? Do you believe that? How many of you wish he would hurry up? <laughs> I mean, come on. You said you were going to meet my need. I'm losing weight waiting on you, Lord. Right? Is his timing better than our timing? Boy, is that easy to say. Is that hard to live? Yes, it is. God will take care of us better than we will in his way and his time. Verse 28. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. This is one my flesh just chokes on. I'm going, you didn't do anything wrong, girlfriend. It's that idiot husband of yours that did the wrong thing. She's taking blame for him. Who took blame for us? Jesus, right? For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you all your days. Here's the principle. Oh, baby, this is going to be some work the next 167 hours. Make decisions in light of God's promises, not today's emotions. Make decisions in light of God's promises, not today's emotions. She's asking for forgiveness even though it's not her fault. She acknowledges that God is going to make David's dynasty, his kingdom, an enduring one. And David will not want an impulsive evil deed like killing Nabal to tarnish reputation for righteousness. Verse 29. She says, if anybody should rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out from the hollow as a sling. She's saying, God treasures your life, David. God's going to protect your life. You don't need to take matters in your own hands. Now here's the word picture. She uses this bundle of life. Shepherds carried two pouches. When a shepherd went out with a flock, they carried two pouches. One pouch contained food right which was essential so food was priceless obviously it was a treasure you protected the other pouch contained rocks to sling at animals or banditos that would take your sheep so she's saying you are in the treasure pouch of god you are in the pouch that god treasures and values you're protected by god just like a shepherd protects his supply of food 
your enemies God's going to treat like rocks in that other pouch and he's going to sling them out away from you, right? And protect you. She's given him a word picture that a shepherd would understand. It's a very wise woman. She says, you don't need to defend yourself and take your own vengeance. God is going to do it for you. Personal revenge is not necessary, David. Verse 30. And it shall come about when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you ruler over Israel. She obviously knows he's been anointed by Samuel. Verse 31. That this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, remember your maidservant. Now she knows that God has promised David is the next king of Israel. Period. She's helping David evaluate the future consequences of today's choices. Evaluate the future consequences of today's, you could write that down. Evaluate the future consequences of today's choices. Today, all of us will make decisions. Some of those decisions will be brilliant, some not so much. You will not know if they're a good decision or a bad decision for the most part until time has passed, right? The future consequences of today's choices. How many of you are now living with the consequences of past choices? Of course, we all do. So five years from now, how many of you will live with the consequences of today's choices? Of course you will. That's the part of life. Wisdom says, evaluate the future consequences of today's choices. She's saying, you want to kill this guy. By the way, he probably needs killing, right? This guy's evil, but it's not your job, David, to kill this guy. God's gonna take care of it in about three verses. You just gotta hang on for the rest of the story, right? I mean, you know, that's not a problem, right? See, we get to read ahead. We get to say, show me the end of this drama. What happens to this guy? Well, God takes him out, it's okay. But she's saying, David, when you're king, you're going to live to regret the fact that you killed a whole household, innocent and guilty. You're going to be king. God's got that covered. But this is going to be regret. This is going to cause you pain. This is, you're angry and you're going to shed innocent blood and it's going to harm your reputation as God's anointed. It's, it's demonstrating you don't trust God to take care of you. You're going to prove King Saul right that you really are a dangerous outlaw and you're really willing to kill innocent people. This is not in your best interest. David's about ready to take matters in his own hands, right? Which means he's taking them out of God's hands. When you and I take matters into our own hands, we take them out of God's hands. Who's got better hands? You really believe that? If you really believe that, here's what you do. Open your hands up. Let go of it. Whatever it is. I don't know what it is. It could be your expectations for your kids or your grandkids or your job or your family or whatever it is. Open the hands up. Let God take care of it. Abigail says, leave things in God's hands, David. You will live to regret this emotional decision. She is arguing in his long-term best interest. You know, one of the, if you've got a friend that argues for your long-term best interest, you've got a friend. 
If you've got somebody who's thinking about what your life will be like in five or 10 years and is advocating for you to make wise decisions today so that five or 10 years from now, you'll be better off than you are today, that's unusual. Because most people in our life, they like us for what? For what they can get. She's going to him as a giver. She's saying, David, when God has you where he wants you to be, this decision you're not gonna like. By the way, it takes courage to do that, right? Have you ever told a friend the truth and they didn't like to hear it? Sometimes it can cost us friendships. Sometimes. Now, when we speak the truth, we need to speak the truth in love. But if you have a dear friend who's going into a train wreck and you see the other train coming, you owe them the truth in love but you owe them the truth don't go oh yeah that's a good decision no problem at all i see it and you can see the other train coming you're going well we're just talking when this wreck's gonna happen right abigail's really demonstrating a really good friendship here she is really 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 uh, doing good for him in the sense that she is encouraging him uh, to do the right thing and uh, anyway, so here's the, uh, verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discernment. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lived who has restrained me from shedding, from harming you, he was going to take her out initially, by the way, unless you had come quickly to meet me, Surely there would have been not left of Nabal until the morning as, as much as one male. He said, if you hadn't shown up when you had, they're all dead and you would be among them. He'd have cleaned everybody's clock. Here's the principle. Learn to respond to God's voice even when it comes from an unexpected messenger. F.B. Meyer wrote, she was a cool hand upon a hot head. Her position of submission became a position of power because David heard the voice of God in Abigail's words. David listens to the godly counsel from a woman who until this point in time, she was unknown to him. I mean, listening to women in that era was highly unusual. Gentlemen, if you're married, I want to tell you your best counselor after the Holy Spirit is your bride. Amen. Period. Ladies, that same thing is true. By the way, if you've got a dear friend who's walking with Jesus and they love you, listen to them. Listen to them. They're there. God surrounds us with people <coughs> to protect us from our own blind spots. That's one of the functions of the body of Christ. That's one of the functions of godly friends. God wants to give us counsel. And to David's credit, he listened to it. You know, our problem is, we tend to listen most to people who are most like us, right? We tend to listen to people who agree with us. The problem is that doesn't teach us anything. It just kind of reinforces our existing biases and prejudices. Our commitment should be to obey God's word regardless of who the messenger is, right? Sometimes your grandchildren, out of their mouth comes God's word, yes? Even your children. I know intelligence skips a generation, but sometimes your children say stuff or a coworker or sometimes 
Someone who doesn't know Jesus at all will drop a line, just a throwaway, and you go, whoa, that's God's word to me. I need to listen to this. I need to pay attention to this. So David's willing to listen to the voice of God, even from an unexpected source. Nabal, of course, refused to listen, and the consequences are disastrous. Now, if you go to verse 36 through the end here real quick, back at the ranch, Nabal is drinking like a fish. He says he's holding a feast. His heart is very merry within him. He was very drunk. Of course, she didn't tell him anything till the next morning, which is a good thing. By the way, never have a serious conversation with somebody of the influence. Don't bother. If they're not in their right mind, don't bother, right? They got to get in their right mind before you have a conversation. Verse 37, he sobers up, right? And she tells him what happened. And apparently either had a cardiac arrest or he had a stroke. Said he became like a stone, turned catatonic. I don't know which one it was at that point in time. But it's interesting that he had a heart of stone already. Now he's really got a heart of stone, right? I mean, and, and he dies at that point in time. Verse 38, about 10 days later, it happened that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Romans 10, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. All those people that you want to take out and teach a lesson to, let God do it. Let God do it. God will take care of business far better than you can. Now, David does very well here. He listens to Abigail. He doesn't kill her husband or anybody else. But God kills Nabal, and David says, this woman is now available. She's intelligent. She can speak truth to me. She's wise. She's beautiful. And he gives her a marriage proposal, but there's a little small detail. He's already got two other wives. This could be a, just a little complication, you know, for just saying, right? David had obeyed God by sparing Saul's life. David had obeyed God by sparing Nabal's wife, but now he's going to disobey God by marrying Abigail. This will be wife number three. Obviously, David did not carefully and prayerfully consider the future consequences of marriage. He wound up with eight wives, which turned out to be a disastrous example for his son, who wound up with a thousand. Okay? Solomon. You can't live today on tomorrow, or yesterday's victories, right? You've got to walk with Jesus one day at a time. Okay, let me give you the highlights again, and then Tom will come up. When you serve others, don't keep score. Trust God to take care of you. Number two, a real friend helps you stop focusing on yourself. Those are called naval examinations, and start focusing on God. Number three, make decisions in light of God's promises, not today's emotions, which means you have to know what the promises are. Okay? And number four, learn to respond to God's voice even when it comes from an unexpected messenger. Okay, I love you guys. Now that you know, do.